In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. During our Sunday Bible class hour, which is right after every service, we've been learning about how the patriarch Abraham was chosen among all the people of the earth to receive the promise of the gospel. The promise was this, that in all that in his seed, all nations would be blessed. His seed being the same seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And uh, it was a promise of universal scope and significance. It was first made to Adam and Eve and to all their children. It was a promise of salvation for all people everywhere. But it was a promise given specifically to Abraham. God chose Abraham specifically because he desired to save all people universally. When God blessed Abraham and Sarah with a son, this promise and and inheritance, which included the entire land of Canaan, fell to him. His name was Isaac. Later on, Isaac's wife found herself expecting twins. She felt them fighting in her womb. God told her that two nations were in her womb and that the older would serve the younger. God had made his choice. So when they were born, the patriarch Jacob, the younger, was born holding on to his older brother Esau's heel. He was born wanting the blessing of his elder brother. He was born fighting for it. His name was Jacob, which means supplanter or really trickster. The inheritance of Esau that Jacob desired included both earthly blessings and heavenly blessings. The inheritance specifically belonged to Esau, who despised it. Jacob wanted it. In Genesis 28, we read of Jacob fleeing the land of promise. Why was he fleeing? He was fleeing because he had just stolen the land of promise at least in a manner of speaking. Remember his name, trickster, supplanter. He had tricked his father into blessing him instead of his older brother Esau. Now Esau wanted to kill him. So Jacob fled the very land he managed to acquire. Jacob desired the spiritual blessing more. Esau was angry about losing the material blessing. Esau was willing to kill for it. Jacob was willing to lose it all, if only to keep the promise of salvation. On his way out, Jacob slept his final sleep before leaving the land that God had given to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. He had a dream, and in it the Lord God stood at the top of a ladder that extended from heaven down to earth. Upon it were angels ascending and descending. The Lord promised Jacob, that the blessing was his, that he would bring him back to this land, and that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. In the meantime, the Lord promised he would not leave him until he had done what he just said he would do for Jacob. Jacob awoke and called the name Bethel, which means house of God, and made his vows to the Lord. 
The Lord was faithful. Jacob was by no means abandoned by God. In fact, God blessed him greatly in the land where he fled. He married, if anything, he married a little more than a man ought to do. His father-in-law and his two wives proved to be just as tricky as he. God increased Jacob and his wealth until he finally told him to return to the land he had left some 25 years earlier. Our Old Testament lesson records the night that Jacob returned. When he had come near, angels greeted him. But Jacob was very distressed. He dreaded meeting his brother Esau. He was afraid he was going to be killed. He prepared gifts for Esau and sent them ahead to assuage his brother's fury. For by now Esau knew that his brother was on his way back. Jacob knew this and was troubled. As we just heard, he sent his whole family and all his possessions across the ford of Jabbok. It seems that he intended to pray that night all by himself. But a man came to him and wrestled with him all night long until dawn. It is a sudden and strange event. The man is not explicitly identified at first. It is not until Jacob insists on receiving a blessing from him that we discover that Jacob knew full well who he was wrestling with. The blessing he received included a change in name. No longer was he called Jacob on account of his conniving. He was called Israel, which means wrestles or struggles with God because he had struggled with God and with men and had prevailed. At personal cost to his own health and strength, Jacob seized the promise. He knew it was his. He wouldn't let it go. The man wrestled, and the man he wrestled with was none other than Christ himself. It was perhaps not far from this borderland of the promised land that our gospel lesson opens up this morning. Jesus went out of his way on his journey to be found where the Gentiles lived. The people here were not children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not God's chosen people. Their fathers had not striven for the promises Jacob had, but had in fact persecuted those who believed it. They were Canaanites, who should rightly have long been purged from the land. God chose the descendants of Jacob, He did not choose the Canaanites. On the other hand, when we look at the promise that God gave to the patriarchs and to the people of Israel, do we not clearly see proof of what Scripture says? That God's love is toward the whole world? Have we not seen how this specific promise had a universal scope? Yes, God chose Abraham, but God also said that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Israel was God's chosen nation. But this did not mean that God's grace was limited to Israel. It is true that Christ came to Israel and that salvation is of the Jews, as he said to the Samaritan woman. But it is also true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Today's gospel lesson addresses clearly 
what appears to be a contradiction in the Bible about God's grace. It appears to be a terrible conflict, but it isn't really. The Bible is God's word. God has no inner conflict. He has gracious desires. He cannot contradict himself. His promise is clear. The Bible teaches that a sinner is saved by God's grace alone. The Bible also teaches that God wants all people to be saved. Why then are some saved and others are lost? We can't answer this question. The question has been called the theologian's cross. Just as the cross of Jesus offends the righteous, this theologian's cross is an offense to those who think that these two biblical teachings must be harmonized by way of human reason. Those who try to bring the teaching of salvation by grace alone into some rational harmony with the teaching of universal grace always end up denying either one or both of these biblical teachings. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace alone, and this means that it's not by human works or choice. It's not that God foresaw who would be faithful unto death. No, it is by God's grace alone. If you are saved, it isn't because of anything you have thought, said, or done. It isn't because you have accomplished God's will, your sanctification. It is because He has accomplished His will in you and towards you. It is pure mercy on the part of God. God chose you. You did not choose Him. God teaches this as clearly as can be taught by teaching us that he elects or predestines his children by pure grace. We read in Romans 8, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. This teaching teaches us to be certain as Christians that our salvation depends on nothing that we accomplish. It depends on what God accomplishes. By this teaching, God gives us certainty that he won't change his mind about us. He knew us from eternity. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son before time began. Just as he named Jacob and chose the younger even before he was born. See how far out of your control if you would trust in it, and so therefore also how far out of you muddling it up your salvation truly is. It is by pure grace, and those whom he calls, he gives faith to, and he forgives us all our sins, and those he forgives, he justifies, and it is why we will also be glorified when Christ returns. Paul says in Romans 8, as though it has already happened, he also glorified, because our glory is found in the resurrected Christ. So certain is it out of our control. The Bible also teaches that God wants all people to be saved, though. 
God so loved the world. St. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, God our Savior, he calls him, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator, or as we say, advocate between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Jesus took upon himself our nature. Whose nature? Human nature. Not Christian nature, not sanctified nature. He who was without sin assumed human flesh and blood. What he assumed, he redeemed. There is no human being that he didn't redeem. There is no human being who has ever lived, who has ever sinned, for whom Jesus did not die and whose sins he did not wash away by his blood. There is no human being whom God does not desire and want and will to save. So on the one hand, the Bible teaches an election of grace. If you are saved, it is because God chose you in Christ Jesus to be saved before time began. And then on the other hand, the Bible teaches that God wants to help and to save all people. The Bible teaches grace alone, either way. The Bible teaches universal grace. Now, while they may appear to conflict, God teaches us both. And so we believe both. Theologians deny the one to affirm the other as they try to reconcile what cannot reasonably be reconciled. We Christians need to leave such things up to God. We can't explain how both grace alone and universal grace are true. We are not conformed to the image of Christ by solving this mystery as though it were a riddle. No, we are formed to the image of Christ by bearing the theologian's cross with every other cross he sends us and by believing what he teaches. True faith doesn't need to figure out how this can be true if that is true or how this doesn't contradict that. True faith simply embraces grace. True faith seeks to possess personally what God offers universally. The Canaanite woman is proof of this. In her wrestling, she proves to be a daughter of Israel. She approached Jesus and asked for mercy. She confessed him as Lord. She called him the son of David. With this, she confessed that he was true God and true man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, her mediator. And what she believed was true. She wasn't going to give it up on account of not getting it. She was too determined to get it, to bother getting it. Jesus had what she needed. She didn't see any contradiction between universal grace and the fact that she was not among God's chosen people. She sought God's choice for her specifically by appealing to God's love for everybody. She found the man with whom Jacob once wrestled and she wouldn't let go. She clung to God's word and wouldn't let any apparent contradiction convince her to loosen her grip. And the way Jesus shows his mercy seems strange to those who expect mercy to avoid the appearance of contradiction. We don't worry about that. Like with Jacob, Christ appears to this poor lady as an enemy. 
But she had seen already how an enemy behaves. The enemy had taken possession of her daughter and tortured her. She knew the evil of the devil already and would not be daunted by Jesus' seeming harshness. She knew what evil was and she knew what evil wasn't. She knew he could help and that's not evil. She knew he would. She knew what she wanted. She knew he was good. And she knew despite appearances that Jesus wanted what was good for her. He wanted to help. Only those who have seen true malice are able to interpret Jesus' seeming harshness as pure kindness. Only those who have seen true malice in the devil who deceives and leads people into self-destroying sins, in the world that follows him, and in our own flesh, which is constantly tempted by what we know to be wrong, what we know defiles us, what we know makes us not trust in God, but afraid of him. Only those who have seen true malice in the devil, the world, and their own flesh see kindness under the cross of Christ. But then Jesus says no. Well, how's that for a cross? How's that for discipline? He says no three times. Three times he pits Jesus pits the doctrine of grace alone against the doctrine of universal grace. And he tells her no. He says no to what she desperately needs. Well, there goes any lesson here. The first time he simply ignored her, like she didn't exist. She wasn't one of the chosen of Israel, so forget her. And his disciples, they're like embarrassed. They look at mercy as something that Jesus can just give someone so that they so that he just, she just stops bothering him. They have such a low view of mercy, just something to, to save them from embarrassment. But Jesus responds to them. He doesn't even talk to her. He says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I didn't come for you. Get. You don't belong here. Who do you think you are to appeal to my kindness? I know who I'm going to be kind to. But she refused to be quiet. Because it is not so much for this lesson. There is so much in this lesson. She knew the lesson. She knew what she needed. She didn't try to figure out some seeming contradiction. Even when Jesus himself seemed to con confirm this contradiction. Because she knew what she needed. And she knew who Jesus was. He was her only mediator. This man, the Lord God himself in the flesh. The fulfillment of all divine promises. The Messiah. The Son of David would help her despite any appearance to the contrary. And she worshipped him as one must only worship God, Lord, help me. And then he refused her for the third time and speaks directly to her. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He ignores her. He refuses her, then he insults her. It's as though Jesus wants her to know that the doctrine of election by grace alone excluded her from grace, but it was the opposite. He was teaching her not to be offended by it, but to find her opening, not where philosophers run their ships aground trying to figure out this mystery which is hidden from the wise, 
No, but where sinners find harbor in their quest for mercy and refuge from God. He gave her her in. And what is her in? What does she latch on to? His word as a light shining in a dark place, as a lighthouse showing her where harbor and refuge is found. His word that refuses to flatter her and even demeans her. As Jacob walked away limping, yet she was willing. And it was his word that teaches only the humble how not to be offended by grace. How will we not be offended by the seeming contradiction for which we are mocked and for which false teachers come up with some way either to get God off the hook or to satisfy some itching intellectual curiosity as though that were the goal of our faith? How? Do we avoid being offended ourselves? We're smart enough. We're curious enough. I'll tell you how. By needing grace. By being willing to be dogs who deserve nothing, understand nothing, but dogs nonetheless who take what they can when what they need is dropped within reach. Just as Christ came down to Jacob to wrestle, Jesus came down to this woman so that he might be pinned in his words, and she pins him, and so do we. Yes, Lord, Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She teaches us how to do the same. She caught Jesus in his words, and that's exactly what he intends for us to do as well. Faith doesn't give up. Faith doesn't look for every mental objection to be satisfied. Faith looks for your need for salvation and mercy from God to be satisfied. Faith finds its stamina not by finding tough questions answered and seeming contradictions resolved, Faith finds its endurance and resolve where faith finds what sinners need, where God gives, challenges, exercises, strengthens, confirms, and focuses your faith. Sinners need mercy. Jesus has mercy to give. Every word he speaks confirms this and invites us to claim it. We are Christians because God chose us, not because we chose him. He chooses us not by inviting us to discern whether we are the lucky few. What will we find? But great cause to cry out to him for mercy. No, he chooses us by teaching us what trouble and disqualifying iniquity our lives are filled with. And then by holding out to us that clear promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the blessed. In your seed... In Christ my Son, and the Lord God who assumes your flesh and blood in order to live a holy life and bear all human guilt and reconcile the whole world to me. In Jesus, all nations, all family, all people are blessed. This is what God teaches all of us. And this doctrine of universal grace is of great comfort to us. It teaches that God loves us no matter who we are, what we look like, or how we have deceived or defiled ourselves with all sorts of unholy desires. For he shows us what his desire is by revealing on the cross his desire for all humanity. He died for all, bearing the sins of all. He redeemed all. He reconciles all to God and beseeches you specifically to be reconciled to God. For the sake of himself, his own suffering and death, by which he became sin for you. 
As Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. As often as we leave whatever material comfort we have, as often as we feel far from the promise of eternal salvation, as often as we must depart, yet we go in peace, as God's angels ascend and descend on Christ for us, teaching us that God will always be with us, to bring us back to what he has purchased for us, eternal life. And though he may wrestle with us, yet he exercises our faith. He blesses us abundantly and teaches us to send it on ahead because we don't need it. We have the God-man, our mediator, wrestling with us, focusing our heart's desire upon his heart's desire, the forgiveness of sins and the life of the world to come. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.